we will continue for now and Lord willing the coming Sundays uh, through the story of, uh, of Joseph, the narrative of Joseph in the book of Genesis. And our scripture reading today is Genesis 45. Genesis 45, and the text is the first part, verses 1 to 15. Let me read the whole chapter. Genesis 45. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud. And the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save our lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Hurry up and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near to me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks, your herds, all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty, for there are still five years of famine. And behold, Your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them, And after that, his brothers talked with him. So that is the text. Then we continue to read the rest of the chapter. And now the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brothers have come. So it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this. Load your animals and depart. Go to the land of Canaan. Bring your father and your households and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are commanded, do this. Take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives. Bring your father and come. Also, do not be concerned about your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Then the sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them carts according to the command of Pharaoh, and he gave them provisions for the journey. He gave to all of them 
to each man changes of garments. But to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. And he sent to his father these things, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and food for his father for the journey. So he sent his brothers away, and they departed. And he said to them, See that you do not become troubled along the way. Then they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob their father. And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when they saw the cards which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob their father revived. Then Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. That's far God's word. In response to the preaching of the gospel, let us sing Psalm 96, verse 4 and 8. Psalm 96, tens of 4 and 8. <clears throat> Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, over a number of Sundays, um, we have uh, read the story of Joseph's life. He was sold to Egypt, became a slave of Potiphar. He became the trusted general manager of Potiphar's household. He ended up in prison when he refused to sleep with his master's wife. And then he became the second in command in the political hierarchy of Egypt. We remember what happened when Joseph and his brothers met for the first time after many years of separation. They did not recognize Joseph and this grumpy and distrustful Egyptian governor, but he recognized them. Fascinating stories. But we've also learned to place those events within the greater framework of what God is doing. How the Lord is working on his plan of salvation, even in the midst of all the unpredictable things that are happening. Step by step, God has been preparing Joseph for his task, to save God's covenant people. They needed to be saved, not just from starvation, it's true too, of course, but also, more importantly, from gradual assimilation with the immoral pagan culture in Canaan. Genesis 38 illustrated that danger. Well then, by the grace of God, things are changing. Last time, two weeks ago, we saw what happened when Joseph's brothers came to Egypt for the second time. Initially, everything went well. And then things took a nasty turn when Joseph's silver cup appeared to be stolen and was found in Benjamin's sack of grain. However, more and more it has become clear how relationships have changed within Jacob's family. Judah's final plea in chapter 44, verse 18 to 34, is the moving evidence of repentance before the Lord, the God of the covenant. Evidence of reconciliation, mutual love, compassionate care, in particular for their father. You may remember Judah's final emotional words in the last verse of chapter 44. 
not what, what we ended with the previous time. How can I go back to my father, says Judah, if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. There must have been a deep silence in the room. And then the tension breaks. And we witness the most dramatic moment in the whole Joseph narrative. But keep in mind, it is the Holy Spirit who brings about the victory of God's grace. And he does so for God's purpose. God's grace reconciles Joseph and his brothers. That's the message for this morning. God's grace reconciles Joseph and his brothers. And what is the effect of that? They see each other. They see God's plan. And they see a new future. God's grace reconciles Joseph and his brothers. And now they see each other. They see the plan of God. And they see a new future. Congregation. Joseph's emotional plea at the very end of chapter 44 makes a deep impression. Kind of a cliffhanger as they call it, right? Two weeks ago. At the end. Previous time we recognized in Judah's confession of guilt, Judah's self-sacrifice, the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus. And now Joseph sees the radical change in the attitude and the mindset of his brothers. And radical it was. Remember from the chapters 34, 37, 38, how Jacob's family, God's Old Testament church, how it was divided by hatred, by jealousy. Remember how life in God's covenant was threatened? How they felt more and more comfortable in the Canaanite culture? The immoral lifestyle that came with it? But that's no longer the same. Finally, Joseph is fully convinced that his brothers are unified in mutual love. They really care for their brother Benjamin. They show a deep compassion for their father Jacob. He hears that in Judah's urgent request. Please, says Judah, please let me, rem- let me remain here as my Lord's slave instead of the boy but let the boy go back with his brothers. However, this request of Judah will not get the response they were hoping for. After a tense moment of deep silence, things take a totally new turn, an absolutely astounding turn, a turn that would make any response to Judah's question redundant. Now the moment has come for the complete and final reconciliation, the unraveling of what God had been working on during Joseph's years in Egypt. Joseph knows this is enough. When he met his brothers before, he had sometimes a hard time restraining himself, remember that, controlling his emotions. It happened a few times that Joseph had to hurry to another room because of his tears. His heart went out to them and to his father. And now it's time to let go. When he sees the amazing victory of God's grace, he throws aside his Egyptian mask and makes himself known as the long-lost brother Joseph. By the way, people have wondered why at this emotional moment 
Joseph does not want to have strangers around, right? Remember it says in verse 1, that with a loud cry he ordered all the Egyptian servants to leave the room. Now some suggest that he might be ashamed of his tears. Others think that he was perhaps embarrassed for the Egyptians to find out that his ancestors were Hebrew shepherds. Others assume that he was considerate of the shame that his brothers might feel when their crime will become known to people who don't have anything to do with it. All these ideas are not very likely. For his loud weeping could be heard all through the house, we read. And on top of that, immediately after this whole event, Joseph shares the whole story with Pharaoh and with his officials. That starts in verse 16 after our text. So it has nothing to do with shame. It has nothing to do with embarrassment. Joseph is not ashamed of his emotions. Not at all. And that's good. That's good. That's good for all of us, actually. Are we not often inclined to restrain our emotions? Or, and that's worse, to deny our emotions? Are we not often embarrassed to show our emotions, especially when it comes to matters of faith? Now, faith is not simply a feeling, of course. Right? Faith is much more than, than, than emotion. Spiritual emotionalism, that is a faith life that is entirely driven by what you feel, is not healthy and is not biblical either. At the same time, there is something amiss if the marvelous miracles of God's love and grace in Jesus do not touch your feelings, right? If, if these, these things would not affect your emotional life. And it's okay to show this, and it's okay to share that. Nowhere does the Bible teach us that impassiveness is a valuable Christian value. Back to Joseph. We can simply understand that this is such a deeply intimate, emotional moment between him and his brothers that is just no one else's business to witness that. And so, deeply moved, filled with overflowing love, Joseph has this emotional outburst, and he is weeping. And as he is weeping, his perplexed brothers hear the most bewildering words they could ever have been thinking of. I am Joseph! Is my father still alive? Now, don't say by yourself, well, they told him already that his father was still alive, so what's the point of asking? As such, that is true, of course. But this is not a rational request for information. No, here is the emotional cry of a son who missed his father's love for many years. It is the scream of a deep longing that had filled Joseph's heart since the day he was sold to Egypt. You can imagine that these men are standing there, thunderstruck, stunned, absolutely dumbfounded. What in the world is going on all of a sudden? They were at a loss for words. They are baffled. It's not only that. The word that is used here also has an element of fear. They are dismayed. The NIV translates that they were terrified. And you cannot really blame them. 
Whatever they may have expected in their wildest dreams, nothing like this. All they see is this Egyptian governor who is totally upset, who is weeping uncontrollably, and he claims to be their own brother Joseph. Go figure. We don't know what went through their mind, of course. It must have felt like a weird dream. Kind of frightening. The first thing that hits home is the seriousness of the guilt towards their brother. I mean, if this man is indeed Joseph, there must be more to come. They realize what they deserve. And they fear his wrath. He has all the power. He can do whatever he feels like. Joseph understands that. And so he's trying to put him at ease. Come near to me. Please, he says. Please come near. And they do. Probably hesitantly, confused, shocked. And then he tries again. Listen, he says, I am your brother Joseph. I am the one you sold into Egypt. Remember that? Look, it's me. Really, believe me. And to prove his claim, he reminds them of what happened some 22 years ago in Dothan. You may wonder why he needed to mention that. Is he just rubbing it in to make them feel bad? No. But at this moment, it was necessary to point openly at the old guilt that was still sitting there. And that will allow them all to point at the same time that there is forgiveness. And when it is forgiven, it's gone. So yes, it had to be mentioned. But they still don't know what to say. So Joseph does it for them. Joseph's heart is full of joy because of the big changes that he has seen. And that's why he adds for five. Do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Don't fear the consequences of what you have done. You don't have to. It's all over now. Joseph and his brothers may look at each other. They may recognize each other. They may see each other as the evidence of the grace and the forgiveness of God. Joseph wants them to recognize what is, or better, who is behind all of this. He wants them to focus on what God has done. He wants them to see what God's plan is. To recognize God's intentions with sending Joseph to Egypt. That's the way to recognize the grace of God and to see the loving care of God for his people. For a long time, that wasn't even clear for Joseph himself, but now he knows. Indeed, uh, brothers and sisters, this reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers is quite amazing. It's a, it's a very moving moment, right? When they see each other, they recognize each other, trust each other after so many years. But there's more to it. Together, they must also come to see God, God's actions. And they, they must come to recognize and acknowledge the planet that God in this, has in these events. Behind all the things they have experienced over the past years, Joseph and his brothers, is the Lord's intention 
to save their lives for the progress of His work, for the promised salvation in Jesus. The same God who restores the harmony in Jacob's family is also going to maintain and protect the life of His covenant people in Egypt. Joseph stresses that three times, verse 5 and verse 6, 7 and 8. God has sent me to Egypt before you. You didn't send me here. God sent me here. After everything that has happened to me, He has now given me the responsibility to limit the disastrous effect of the famine. And behind that is the intention, God's intention, God's plan to maintain and protect your lives. In other words, by selling me to Egypt, you have actually been helping God to work out His plan. Although you didn't know it, and it was definitely not your intention. And as Joseph continues to talk that way, to describe the situation, he keeps pointing at this. For two years already, there has been famine in the land, and it's not over yet. The future looks even worse there's five more years of hunger to come. There will be neither plowing nor harvesting. No one will even bother doing that. Without Joseph, the situation would be hopeless. You have already experienced how bad things are. Without his help, his brothers and the family would for sure die from starvation. Well, he says, precisely for that reason, the Lord our God has sent me to Egypt. He keeps hammering on that. It's been a long way, lots of trouble, lots of difficulties, moments of despair, but also many signs of God's faithfulness. God has given me this top job as the special governor in control of the food supply. And by doing so, God has tasked me to prepare everything for your arrival. In His faithfulness, He made sure that everything would be in place for you to be looked after. Why is that? What is God's plan here? For seven mentioned two things. First, Joseph says, to preserve for you a remnant on earth. To make sure that your existence, your life, will continue. How wonderful is the faithful care of the Lord, right? For we're talking about His covenant people. And in His grace, He will not let them disappear. He never will. That's God's promise. We're talking about the future of God's covenant of grace. In that, in, in, in this astonishing way, God shows us here again that His covenant for us and our children is an eternal covenant. Remember that? It's in the form of baptism that the expression is used. It's an eternal covenant. And God's faithfulness is an everlasting faithfulness. And the future of His covenant people is in His hand all the time. He is going to safeguard His people in Egypt because of His promise to Abraham. All people on earth will be blessed through you. And so from age to age, God continues to pave the way for the coming of Jesus into the world. From then on till the very end of our history, He will gather His people from all tribes and all nations that's you and me today. And then you also recognize the other purpose mentioned in verse 7. To save your lives by a great deliverance. 
Through Joseph, God will provide Israel's livelihood. But the point is, again, that his work will continue in the world. The work of his grace, the work of his salvation. That's why he called it a great deliverance. The great deliverance, the promise of freedom with a great and marvelous perspective. As the Lord protects his people against the spiritual ruin in Canaan, he is already paving the way for showing his faithfulness in the exodus from Egypt. It's about 400 years later. To bring them back in the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is on his way to the greatest deliverance ever that will come in the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Savior of the world. That's the greatest deliverance ever. Do you recognize the faithfulness of our God? God keeps his word. God maintains his promises no matter what happens. Think of it. Think of it. He puts Joseph in charge of Egypt. He brings the brothers to him. He fulfills Joseph's dreams. He moves Judah to offer himself as a sacrifice. He reconciles the family. And all that for the future of the gospel. This God was not only Joseph's God, my brother, my sister. This is our God today. This is the God of all grace. All mercy. The God of the greatest deliverance forever in the whole history of this world. You know, we watch the news and we listen to our political leaders and we see what's going on in our culture. And all these things can get pretty discouraging. But when we go only by our own human observation, we miss what is really going on. We need the lens of God's Word to see that the Holy God is working out His plan. In that light, Joseph can say to his brothers, You did not send me here. God did. Pharaoh did not make me Lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Chapter 41 would suggest that Pharaoh did it. But no, God did it. Then he says, God made me a father to Pharaoh. It's a kind of an interesting expression. What, 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 what he's doing is emphasizing his position as a wise and trusted advisor to the king of Egypt. He doesn't do that to brag about it. But he shows again God's unique care for his people. In the inner court of the Egyptian leadership, God is at work. By the way, the question could come up. Would Joseph's conclusion, you did not send me here, but God did, would it be a valid excuse for the brothers? Would it justify their sin? I mean, if I do something wrong, but it turns out to be part of God's plan, I am off the hook, right? Or not? Evil things become good things, or not? The answer is no. Joseph's brothers are not excused just because in the end everything turned out all right. But it does confront us with an interesting question and a much debated question, actually. We believe that God is fully in control. 
And at the same time, you and I are still for 100% responsible for what we are doing. I mean, how often do you not end up discussing that question? May I have a Bible study or whatever it is? God is 100% in control, and I am 100% responsible for what I'm doing. How does that work? Somehow, the holy and almighty God makes use of the evil activities and plans of sinful people, even godless people who don't care about God. In his sovereign power, he uses all these things to work out his counsel and plan. No matter how malicious people's plans are, how destructive people are acting, our God has his own intentions. And he will make sure that in the end, the outcome will reflect his intentions. But that does not provide an excuse for human evil. It does not imply that you and I and everyone else are not accountable for the bad things we're doing or saying. It does not take away our guilt, our sin. You know, our problem when we think of those things and and discuss those things sometimes, uh, our problem is that most of the time, if you are at the receiving end of evil experiences, you have no idea why those things happen to you. And how that could possibly be good for you. But hold fast. Trust all the time that nothing happens beyond the will of God. Regardless of what people have in mind, the God of heaven and earth controls their plans and efforts for the sake of His plans, according to His intentions. And those plans and those intentions are good. As is true, God often works in most mysterious ways, ways that can often leave us perplexed. But keep in mind, God is not accountable towards you and me. His way in the history of this world and the church, His way in your and my life, is much too deep for us to fathom. God controls even the sinful plans and wrongs that we are responsible for, And everything he does is free from sin. When Joseph's brothers sold him to Egypt as a slave, their purpose was to make him disappear. And at that time, it looked as if God was doing the same thing, make Joseph disappear. But his intentions were different. His goal was to safeguard his people for a great deliverance. Now, of course... Initially, Joseph himself didn't have a clue why he was going through all this misery. Sometimes we wonder where God is. Sometimes you wonder where God is going with your life. What His love and compassion really look like. Is God not supposed to be your loving Father? But there are times that He seems to do the same thing that His enemies are going for. Someone can even say that to you. Look at what you're dealing with. You're a Christian, right? Look at all the trouble and misery you're dealing with. Is your God not supposed to help you? Is He not supposed to be your loving Father? What is God doing for you? 
My brother, my sister, trust your father's good intentions. Let it be the source of hope and comfort and encouragement in your daily struggles. And then you will also learn to forgive. That's an important aspect here. Look at Joseph. The crime committed more than 20 years ago could have filled him with anger and with a desire for revenge. But Joseph sees their hatred conquered by the grace of God. He sees the great mercy. God's mercy in Jesus Christ covers the sins of those who repent, who confess their guilt and humble themselves. And so Joseph forgives. And together, Joseph and his brothers may now see the plan of God. Together they may now recognize God's grace and God opens a new future for God's people. So this is the message that has to go back to Jacob in Canaan. As soon as possible. Hurry back to my father. Tell him everything. Verse 9, verse 13. Tell him, says Joseph, that I am alive, that I am a powerful man in Egypt, and then urge him to come down to me with the whole family, everyone, and, and let him take along everything they have, for it's not going to be a short visit. Five more years of famine are still to come. And in his mind, Joseph has already picked an area in Egypt where they could live, the region of Goshen. Now, we don't know the exact location, but it was somewhere between the deserts and the east side of the Nile Delta. And it was probably also fairly close to Joseph's own residence. That would make sense. And what Joseph is saying in verse 9 to 13, you can sense his deep desire. His impatient longing to see his father and the urge to fulfill the task God has entrusted to him to provide food and security for the people of God in Egypt. That's fantastic. But let's not lose sight of, uh, of the fact that this is actually a pretty drastic move for the covenant family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. During this famine, settling in Egypt was God's way of taking care of them. And of course, Jacob wanted to see his long-lost son again. We see it at the end of our text, at the end of the chapter, actually. But the flip side is that they had to leave the land that God had promised to give them as a possession. And that's why the Lord reassures Jacob when he is about to cross the border that his covenant promises will not change. It says in the beginning of chapter 46, Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, God said to Jacob. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will bring you back again. For now Egypt will provide the food and safety for God's people that they need at that time. By God's grace in those temporary situations, they will grow into a great nation for the next 400 years. And in those 400 years, God himself will prepare them for a time that they will return, and by the same grace, take possession of the promised land. Sure, Joseph has taken care of arranging all the logistical details, but it is God's great faithfulness that guarantees the future of his people. He is using, and he will always use, the political and economic powers of the world to fulfill his promises to complete his plans in the saving work of Jesus Christ. 
Isn't that amazing to see throughout this whole history? God is working in everything for the benefit of his people, for the benefit of all of Israel and all his children. This is what he had in mind all along. Our God, my brother, my sister, our God always works out his plans through all the human plans and efforts in Canaan, in Egypt, in Canada, everywhere. And then finally the joy breaks through. Last few verses of our text, 14 and 15. Initially they were too stunned to say anything. And then when it sank in that this was indeed their brother Joseph, they were not so sure where this was going to go. It's a stark reminder of their guilt. But then when they realized that Joseph will not take revenge, slowly the fear and bewilderment disappeared. After that his brothers talked with them. He says, and then the joy is complete. Then the wonderful joy when they share a new harmony and see the prospect of a new future for God's people. What a miracle. No more fear, no more distrust. Unity restored. Final reconciliation is a fact. Verse 14 and 50 paint a moving picture of this reunion. Many tears were shed. They must have done a lot of talking. There was so much to ask, so much to tell, so much to explain. And here is what is most wonderful and special in all of this. We see the visible victory of the grace of God. We see the renewing power of His mercy. In His grace, God Almighty brings His people together in submission to His Word. And by His Spirit, He binds us together as His people He fills us with new hope when we focus on that. And He puts us on the road towards a new future. The future of the great deliverance. My brother, my sister, this is our God. His action in Joseph's palace at that time guarantees today the progress of His grace among us. The church of God may move forward in good courage. So be filled with strong hope on your way to the grand future of Jesus Christ when He returns in full glory. Amen.